0: Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading is from morning, Revelations 3, 14 to 22. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so you can see. To those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on the throne just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.
1: Good morning, church. Good morning, everyone. It is good to be with you. I cannot believe we are standing on the precipice of Thanksgiving, though the it's like the redheaded stepchild of the holidays, because uh, peppermint lattes are being served all over the country, and Christmas music is playing on the radio, and uh, Costco and Walmart and Target would all have us believe that the Christmas season starts in September. So... Here we are embracing Thanksgiving. It's good to be together, and thanks again for reading, man. So beautifully, so passionately—that was awesome. I love it, man. So we're wrapping up today, Uh, the series that we've been in—in and out of for the last several weeks. Honestly, uh, it's been one of the my favorite things we've done in a long time. I've—I've loved every moment of it. It's been really, really rich. Uh, I wasn't sure what to expect, to be quite honest. When we were coming into Revelation, I was like, oh man, we're going to be preaching out of Revelation. This could get exciting. But uh, it's been so rich and so instructive. And it's been one of those series, at least for me, where uh, I find myself sort of meeting God in the scriptures uh, in a really appropriate way. And I hope for us today, as we wrap things up, that that will continue to be the case Uh, We are, just to summarize where we've been, uh, the seventh of seven churches, the first church, uh, the word to them was love, hang on to the love of God and the love of one another. We talked about faithfulness, the need to remain faithful in every circumstance. We talked about truth, holding on to the truth when the truth gets threatened, and when we are tempted to step outside of the truth. We talked about holiness, when holiness is difficult uh, in society, in the lives that we live, to try to hang on to holiness, authenticity. We talked last week about mission, the open door that God opens, and today we're going to look at this word, wholeheartedness, wholeheartedness. Living in a conscious dependence on God in every area of life. Putting God in the center of where we live, no matter where we are and what we're doing, from the most mundane thing to the most worshipful thing, to be conscious of God's presence, his sovereignty, and our commitment to worship him in everything that we do and say how we operate in the world around us. And if you followed kind of the theme, for those of you who have been taking notes or, or like the structure of how these letters have been written, you'll maybe have noticed that each letter brought an affirmation. Each letter also brought a kind of rebuke, right, a hard word. And then there was some kind of instruction that followed. And then you listen to today's passage and you're kind of looking at it going, huh, That one feels a little bit different because it's all bad news. There's no like, hey, I really love what you guys are doing over there, but I've got this one thing I'm holding against you. There's none of that. It's like, hey, you guys are all kinds of messed up. And here's this hard word that he's bringing at the end, right? It's like he was cordial and nice. And instructive all the way through. And then right at the end, it's like, well, I'm going to get this last word in. I'm going to bring a hard word. But my encouragement to us as we hear that word is to recognize that the hard word is the loving word. That the hard word is hard because the person giving it is loving and caring for us in a way that is necessary. And it's easy to skirt past the hard word in our lives with our families, our loved ones, our coworkers, whomever it might be. It's easy to pass by the hard word, but the hard word is the loving word. And the picture that we are given in verse 14 is surely read of Jesus, right? That image of Jesus that we want to carry with us as we go through the passage today is he is described as the amen the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Not just amen, like we pray at the end of a prayer, which literally means verily or truly or so be it. We're talking about the amen, Jesus himself. He is the one who is true. He is the one who is faithful. He is the one who is the ruler of God's creation, the true witness. And so we want to recognize that this is who we are worshiping. This is who's given us this hard word today. And we'll see that hopefully permeate through uh, what it is that he's telling us about. All right? So, here we go. Nothing good said. All bad news. Is there any hope? The church is so sick spiritually speaking, that he uses a a sort of medical, clinical metaphor to kind of walk us through our illness. And so just to give you a road map, we're going to see some symptoms of what's going on in the church. We're going to make a diagnosis about maybe what's going on underlying those symptoms. And then we'll come up with a treatment plan from Dr. Jesus Uh, in terms of how we're going to approach some of the challenges that we're facing, maybe we'll survive. But before we jump into that, can I pray for us and just continue to give our time over to the Lord? Heavenly Father God, we attend ourselves to you this morning. We want this time, this space that we have dedicated to you more than any other time that we're going to spend today to be fully yours We've marked out the time. We've set it on our calendar. We're here, Lord. And we want to do precious business with you. We want to work with you face to face as we worship today. And we open ourselves up, God. In whatever way that we're able this morning, we open ourselves up to you and we open our hands and our minds and our hearts. And we say, Lord, come be with us. Come offer us your word. Come offer us instruction. Come tease out of us the areas that we need to focus on today so that we can continue walking with you today and tomorrow and the next day in a way that is pleasing and honoring to you, Lord. So we give thanks. We give thanks this morning for this time that you've provided. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we approach any kind of spiritual diagnostic, it's important to consider, is this true of me? How might this word be true of me? To what degree is it true? And go back to that picture, the amen, the faithful and true witness, and continue to do that business with God. Because I firmly believe that when we're confronted with a hard word, it's easy to run Right? It's easy to turn and go in another direction and embrace some other distraction. So here we are trying to do this critical business. So what's the symptom of the condition that we're in? He lays it out for us in uh, verses 15 and 16. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Hard work, right? So it's this lukewarmness. Because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, we get this strong reaction, this rejection, this expulsion, this expectoration, right? There's this crazy imagery that's going on here, right? We've taken a swig of something and it is not pleasing to us and we have this immediate visceral reaction, and it's to spray it out all over the place. You ever have that happen? Where you take a swig of something, and maybe you're expecting one thing or another, or somebody's played a practical joke, they've put all the salt in your water at the restaurant, whatever it is, they've done something, and you're meeting that taste, that flavor, that temperature, that sensation, and it's so strong, That the only thing you can think to do, your body just reacts and it just spews it out. It doesn't matter who is in front of you or what kind of fancy party you're at or where you are. It's coming out. It's going out all over the place and it's done. And all you can think of is I'm just so happy that it's no longer, you know, swirling around in my mouth. That's what Jesus is describing of his church, of us, right? Startling word. So tepidness or lukewarmness, what is it? What are we talking about? He offers this contrast in order to get after this notion of lukewarmness because I think we've got a lot of ideas out there because maybe if you've been around the church or you've been around Christianity uh, for any length of time, you've heard this lukewarm term, right? Never in in a good context, but we really got to nail it down. What are we talking about? So by contrast... If you look in verse 19, and we'll talk about this as part of the um, part of the treatment plan, but he says this. He says, "Be earnest and repent. Be earnest as a, an opposite, corrective sort of attitude or behavior that's kind of a contrast to this lukewarmness notion. And if we talk about earnestness In verse 19, the word in Greek is zealous, which sounds very familiar to what it means. It means to be zealous. It means to be uh, kind of excited and committed. So the lukewarm Christian is one without zeal. One without commitment. One without any energy behind their belief. The word zealous or zealous, often translated in the Bible, jealous, sometimes describing Jesus himself as being jealous for us. It's the same word that sometimes has multiple meanings or twin meanings. And jealousy, if we think about jealousy, is about setting your uh, love intensely on something or someone, Right? And jealousy comes about because we've set our intention on ourselves. You notice this? When we set our love intensely on our self, we develop enviousness, right? Because we look around at everybody else and they've got something that we don't have and our attention can get skewed. And when we set it on someone else, we become jealous or zealous for them. For someone else to set our love so intensely on another person or another object or another thing so that all of our energy and all of our focus goes toward that thing, we can often create kind of an explosion of purpose and meaning and value where we want to see that person's satisfaction, we want to see their happiness, we want to see them succeed, right? You see what I'm saying? this language sort of is being played on here. So what Jesus is saying about the lukewarm Christian, going back to that person, he's not saying that they're hypocrites. He's not saying that they're doing uh, something other than what they believe. They're actually doing what they believe. They're going to church and they're doing the things. They're going through the motions. These are not people who are faking it till they make it what is happening inside of them is that they've set their hearts and their intentions on something other than Jesus. And when you set your zealous on something other than Jesus, you will ultimately live for that thing. And it's usually not something bad. This is actually the great difficulty of our heart's commitments because we commit our hearts to things that are not necessarily bad, In the eyes of God, we overcommit ourselves and we leave Jesus out of the picture because we can commit ourselves to our work. God wants us to be working hard, productive citizens. We can commit ourselves to our relationships. It could be to our family, to our friends, to our children, to our parents. God wants us to be faithful friends and good family members and commit ourselves to those critical relationships in our lives. It could be to anything good. Around us. It's when we overcommit ourselves to those things and we leave Jesus out of the picture. Do you see what I'm saying? It is not that we are not zealous. We are zealous for the wrong things and not zealous enough for the things that are most critical. So the lukewarm Christian is there before uh, in the church. There's no zeal for God, no intimacy, no wonder, no excitement. There's no oomph behind our faith. It's just like we're there floating in the ether, but there's no passion there. There's no excitement. There's no uh, significance to it. And so as Jesus is calling this out, he says two very startling things, and the first of which uh, most commentators struggle with to understand. He says, "I know your deeds; that you are neither hot nor cold." Listen to this. I wish you were either one or the other. Exclamation point. Right? He says, "I would rather you be cold or hot. Hot is easy, right? Because we've got all these great terms for for zealous Christians. You know, people who are on fire for God. People who are called firebrands. I just want to be on fire for Jesus. You know, on down the line. So fire, hot zeal, good. Right? Maybe a little crazy." at times, but it's considered a good thing most of the time, right? But he says, I'd also rather you be cold rather than lukewarm. And we struggle with this. What does that mean? Is Jesus saying, I would rather you be not Christian at all, or super spicy hot Christian, then something in the middle, that's neither of those. And commentators are like, well, that that doesn't make sense. Right? The Lord of the universe, the Jesus who wants all that be saved, that none should perish, is saying, I'd rather you be one or the other. I'd rather you be in or be out. But not in the middle. if I'm going to sort of overlay maybe a pastoral lens on top of this, right? or even a chaplaincy lens, because that fits too. Here's what I think this means. When people are lukewarm, I think they see their Christianity, their faith, as kind of a hobby. And they dabble in Christianity. And they've read some scripture and they've been to church, and they've done Christian things, and live generically in a Christian-ish kind of way, but do not have power, conviction, or reality to their faith. And I will say, having encountered many of those people over my life, in my ministry career, that those are the hardest people to minister to because they're just kind of there. And you want to move them along toward more depth and more faith and the application of their faith. And you want to get them to serve and you want to get them to see, but they don't live their life following Jesus. Jesus is actually not at the center of their hearts. He's over here off to the side, close enough where we might believe that he's at the center of our life, and for you ask them to their face, hey, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, 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 of course I believe in Jesus. But do you really believe? And they would answer yes, but I think as a pastor I would say, I actually don't know. I'm not sure. So you're close enough. You're close enough to know the things and check all the boxes, but you're far enough away where a discerning eye and a discerning presence might say I actually don't know if they're Christian at all apart from some of these experiences and some of these behaviors are you with me and by contrast the person who is not a Christian at all in fact the people who are maybe even opposed to Christianity or have like bad experiences are like no 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 I'm not a Christian man I love hanging out with those folks Because you know what's true about them? They know what they believe. They know what they don't believe. And they're okay with it. They're not trying to fool anybody. They're not confused about what it is that they hold to. Those people who are cold are actually closer to Jesus than the people who are lukewarm, who think they know Jesus, but don't know Jesus. You know what I mean? The people who think they've got it on lockdown, but who don't, are further from God than the people who are one decision away from giving their lives to Jesus and moving into the hot category. Are you with me? Right? Because the further you are from God over here, once God captures your heart, you bypass lukewarmness and go straight to hot. You are an induction burner. And it's on. When it's on, it's on. You hear me? That's what I think is going on here. There is a lukewarmness that, that offers so much disdain. There's this passage that came to mind this week, 1 Corinthians 13. I know it's the love chapter, verses 5 to 8. It's been read at every wedding known to man, even though I, I actually don't think it applies there. But 1 to 4. Listen to what it says in verses 1 to 3, rather. 1 to 3. Listen to this. This is very damning language. If I speak in tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, maybe overlay Zalos in there, I am only a resounding glong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all I possess to the poor and give my bo- over my body to hardship that I might boast, I do not have, and I do not have love, I gain nothing. See what's happening here? Not only can you be lukewarm and be lost, you can be spiritually, supernaturally operative and not be a Christian at all. You can be Jesus-adjacent, right, and not be a Christian at all. You can do all of the things that Christians are supposed to do and can do and actually not be Christian. And if that doesn't sort of bother you, just a little, then maybe you're not paying attention. Scary, scary stuff. There's no joy, no love, no spirit there, no zeal, no zeal, no earnestness. So the first thing Jesus says, it's better to be hot or cold rather than be in the middle. Right? And the second thing he says this, and this is the, the hard word, right? It's not what we expect. He doesn't say, my wrath is upon you, I'm going to punish you, I'm going to do this. He says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. He says you turn my stomach. He says you make me want to vomit. This behavior nauseates me. And it's visceral. It's personal, right? And we see that and we go, "Man, that is that is tough." I would describe this as bitter disappointment. Bitter disappointment. And it immediately brought a picture into my mind because I know what bitter disappointment is. Bitter disappointment doesn't come out of alienation. It doesn't come out of somebody who doesn't know and care for you. Bitter disappointment comes from somebody who has loved you and given everything for you so that you could become a particular kind of human being. And when we fail to become that kind of human being, bitter disappointment is what follows. Have you ever seen this? I was on the receiving end of bitter disappointment in middle school. I was a you know a normal knucklehead kid, right? And I remember this. I think I've told this story, but it's, it's it bears repeating. I remember I was a kid. I was out with my buddies riding my bikes in the neighborhood. We went to the Hillsdale Mall, and we were at Sears, back when Sears was a thing. And we were cruising around. I don't know what we were doing. We had no intentions. We had no good intentions. We were just walking around Sears. A bunch of 12-year-olds walking around Sears, and we saw video games. And we thought, oh, man, those video games are not on lockdown. I bet we could grab some of those video games. This is a clear picture into the mind of a 12-year-old whose brain is not fully developed. We could, we could snake some games, and we could just walk right out of here, jump on our bikes, and we'd be gone. And guess what? Like a bunch of idiot 12-year-olds, we get caught. My mom comes to pick me up. I get in the car, we throw my bike in the back, we drive home, and all I'm thinking to myself is my life is over. Right? I'm expecting wrath. You hear me? Right? My first-generation Asian dad is going to bring a hammer. Right? And I'm going to be pounded into a fine powder when I get home. Right? They're not even gonna know where to find me because I'll have settled into the carpet by then. (laughs) And I get back and he sits me down. I remember sitting there and thinking, you know, well, this is how I go. Right? It's been a good life. And he looks at me and he's just got this look in his eyes. And it's bitter disappointment. Man. And he didn't say a word. I was expecting a lot of words. And I didn't get a single one. I just got a look that's burned into my memory. And the look was bitter disappointment. And I've never forgotten it. And I think this is the look. If Jesus were standing there before the church in Laodicea, that would have been the look. It wouldn't have been wrath. It wouldn't have been the hammer. It wouldn't have been, you know, you guys are going down. It was just a look. (sighs) Man, took my breath away. So that's the symptom. Lukewarmness. I'm going to pick up the pace. Holy moly. So there's a diagnosis that needs to happen underneath the surface here. Because these are just symptoms. Lukewarmness is just... The symptom of the problem, the real problem, lies beneath the surface. Three fast facts about Laodicea. Laodicea was in the southernmost region of the Lyca Valley, and it was a prominent place back in the day. It lies in ruins now, but back in the day, it was the place. It was a financial hub, so much so when an earthquake happened in AD 60 and leveled the entire town. They didn't ask for a single dime from the Roman Empire. They paid for the reconstruction of their community all by themselves out of their own financial resources, which was unheard of at the time. This is a wealthy, wealthy, powerful place. They were also one of the epicenters for lots of medical development. They created an eye salve that was, causing, uh, that was a healing agent for blindness that was happening uh, in the region They were also known for textile because they had these really fancy black sheep that lived in the region so they could create this beautiful black wool from the sheep that they have and they would ship it because they were a port city and everybody knew that the wool from Laodicea was beautiful and shiny and black and beautiful. And so Jesus is being intentionally uh, bitterly ironic when he says that he thinks that they are rich And they're clothed and that they have great vision when in fact, spiritually speaking, they're naked, poor, and blind. Do you see it? You think you've got all this stuff, all your money, all your medicine, all your beautiful black sheep. And in fact, what you have is nothing. You're naked, you're poor, and you're blind. You can have it all and you can have nothing, friends. Verse 17, you say, I'm rich, I have have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And what he's telling us here, friends, is that there's a direct link between being wealthy, rich, capable, smart, and spiritual lukewarmness that we need to be very attentive to. Because when you're brilliant and you're wealthy, and in the world that way, and you say to yourself, you know, am I a sinner saved only by the grace of God? I don't think so. I think I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I think I'm a self-made man or woman. And this kind of self-actualizing language actually moves us away from the gospel and the wonder of the gospel that we are sinners saved by grace isn't spectacular news to us because we don't think we need it in the way that others might need it. It's very difficult to overcome, spiritually speaking, being smart, being wealthy, being accomplished. It's actually really hard. It's really tough. And we stop and we wonder, why is the gospel so stagnant in North America Why is it that we are in decline in countries like Africa and countries like China, other places? Oppressed nations, primitive cultures are thriving with the gospel. You want to know why? It's because they know they need it. And we don't need it. That's somebody else's problem. Martin Luther King, uh, in his letter from Birmingham jail, wrote this famously, almost prophetically. He says, There was a time when the church was very powerful, in the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed, and in those days the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. And whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. And, but the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a, a colony of heaven called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God intoxicated to be astronomically Intimidated. And by their effort and example, they brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contests. Things are different now. So often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with uncertain sound. So often it's an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silence and often even vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century, Every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. It's our indictment. Because we are not the zealous people that we once were. In the end, Dr. Jesus gives us a prescription for healing. Now, it's important to note that, like all prescriptions, you don't have to actually do it. You can ignore the prescription and, uh, you know, be non-compliant and just go on your merry way. It's the beauty of the gospel of grace here. But here's the treatment plan. One, we've got to grasp the grace of salvation. Look at what he says in verse 18. I counsel you. I counsel you. I don't command you. I don't tell you what to do. I'm counseling you. Take it or leave it, guys. To buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white cloth- with white claws to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Right? The white robe is an acceptable fit for us. It is our place, an acceptable life before God. We get cleansed white. It's a place of status. It's a place of belonging, right? It's not of shame. It's of connection. Gold refined by fire. This is spiritual status before God. We've got nothing before him and he gives us gold so we can have in our position status, position, power, and wealth Spiritual sight to see yourself as God clearly sees you and how you ought to see yourself as things truly are, not through the distorted lens of our own self-jealousy. Two, we've got to embrace suffering. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire it's got to be refined because if it doesn't go through the fire and if the impurities are not removed, what is it? It's brittle. It's fragile. it's Junk. And under the greatest simple moment of tension or of pressure, it breaks. It doesn't hold together. Verse 19, those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline, so be earnest and repent. Now, um, not all suffering is discipline. I'll say that. Some of it is self-inflicted, right? If you punch yourself in the face and say, why did God do that to me, right? Okay, we can have a conversation about that, right? Sometimes suffering comes from just living in a fallen world and being fragile human beings. Sometimes it's in response to the sinfulness of others, right? Not all suffering is discipline. We can't always say, why is God doing this to me? But I will say this, all suffering is an opportunity to meet God in the midst of those places and to advance our faith and to advance his presence in our lives in a powerful way, right? So not all suffering is uh, discipline, but all suffering can be used uh, for a greater good in our lives that God can actually create with us in those spaces, right? But that's a whole nother suffering, a whole nother sermon. Third thing, we've got to be open to his love. We've got to be open to his love, Right? He says, you nauseate me, but I love those whom I instruct. You make me sick, but I love you. Right? I can't tell you how many times I've said this to my own children. Right? <laughs> You're so lucky God made you cute. <laughs> Here I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. This is a beautifully personal invitation to come inside and to dine with Jesus, right? I think about the prodigal son. Of all the terrible things the prodigal son did, all the shame that he heaped on his father and in his house, the dad sat on a chair and waited for his son to return and prayed every day, please God, let me see my son come over that hill. And when he does, I'm going to run And I'm not going to care about my own embarrassment. I'm not going to care about my own ridicule. I'm not going to care if anybody makes fun of me, if anybody questions me in this moment. I'm going to get up, I'm going to kick my sandals off, and I'm going to run, and I'm going to meet my son on the hill. And he's not going to get wrath. He's going to get welcome. You see what I'm saying? Jesus says, I stand at the door and I knock. He doesn't barge his way in. He's knocking on the door and he's saying, if you open the door, if you open the door to me, I'll come in. And that's a constant invitation that he offers to us of intimacy. And this is a picture of the church, friends, right? This is not uh, evangelistic in nature. This is not to people who are outside the church. This is to the church itself. And when Jesus says he's standing at the door, he's standing at the door of the church. And he's knocking. And he goes, I don't know what you guys are doing in there, but if you'll let me in, that would be great. I'd love to get in there and worship with you. What a powerful indictment and invitation. Grasp His grace. Patiently endure suffering. Be open to His love. And the last thing that He tells us, I think is the most amazing thing in all the seven letters. He says, To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious, and sat down with my Father on His throne. You and I are not only being invited in, as wayward, lukewarm, nonsense kinds of Christians, but we're being given an invitation to rule and to lead and to be seated in a place of honor. And the question is, why is Jesus ruling the world? Because he earned it. Why do you and I get an invitation to sit at his right hand, friends, And the answer is the same, because Jesus earned it for you and for me. You and I get that invitation to have a white robe because Jesus was stripped naked before he got put on the cross. You and I get salve for our eyes so that we can see because Jesus was blindfolded and beaten and asked to prophesy, who's hitting you? You and I get wealth, spiritually speaking, because Jesus had all of his possessions taken from him. Even after he descended from heaven and gave up all that he had already, all of his possessions were taken from him and those cast lots for whatever it is that he had left. So you and I could be spiritually rich and have wealth and have power. And the reason, friends, is because he was jealous for you. He set his love intensely upon something else and someone else, and it was you and it was me. And all of his bitter disappointment was born out of this incredible, intense, everlasting Love so that you and I, our appropriate response, Romans 12 says this, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies, your whole selves, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Some places say appropriate worship, and I would agree. We are called to be zealous for Jesus because he was first zealous for us. And if we pry open our hearts and pry open our hands and we begin to recognize that without him we have nothing. For all of our wisdom, all of our insight, all of our intellect, all of our talent, uh, we've got nothing. Uh, Save Jesus waiting at a door for us. Let's pray together.